Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Fubar Radio. We started. This is it. This is this is it. Are we recording? We're recording. I can see the red. Okay. Well, well. I mean, I know I cut it fine, but the. You guys should be ready for whenever the hell I turn up. Whenever you're here. <laughs> um, sorry, I'm late. Um, hello, my name is uh, Nick Helm. Yes. And this is... Nathaniel Metcalf. And you're listening to Five Star Family Fun Size Fan Club. It's not fun size, is it? It's two fucking hours. That's fun. Just start... If you're just starting now thinking, oh, I could just do a little fun-sized treat... This is two hours, guys. So uh, we get stuck in. in. Um, what's the first one? I mean, you could you could watch um, Naked Gun and still have thirty-two minutes of this show left to listen to. Pick a police squad on after. Yes. Or you could listen like, to this show, which is. Or you could just listen to listen to what this show that you're listening to now. You already started. <laughs> Sometimes I like to just put a movie on in the background, turn the sound off, and listen to the dulcet tones of Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf on Fan Club. Um, yeah. Uh, what's the first rule of Fan Club? Tell your friends about Fan Club. Just tell your friends. It's plain and simple. If you want to join the club, uh, there's only one rule. Well, there's not. There's two. Not an exclusive club. But they're both they're both basically the same rule. Tell your friends and fucking tell your fucking friends, because um, otherwise that's how that's how good things get spread about. And coronavirus is by sharing them with people. Um, so that is uh, that's the telling. I always hate starting the show with a big telling off, but some of you haven't been telling your friends, so it's a shame. It's a shame that one or two bad apples have let have let the team down. It for everyone else. We wouldn't have to do two hours if there were more people listening. But what we're doing is, we are you know, if there was twice the audience ship, we could do half the amount of time. But we have to spread spread the word. I don't know what I'm talking about. We've had a week off, but you guys haven't because we uh, did a double double record the other week. Um, so it's yeah, it's, but, but yeah, I can't speak for Nathaniel, uh, but I'd be very surprised if he wasn't feeling rusty, uh, because you know, at his best, he's hardly <laughs> galvanized steel. So, um, <laughs> uh, what, have you, what have you been up to this week? Well, I well, went out for your birthday, we had a nice uh, birthday treat. That was my highlight of the week. Um, I would, I would say. That that is the best birthday I have ever had. Oh, that's nice. Especially as given that I imagine you thought you were going to have a miserable one. Um, well, I, well, to be honest, I um, so I've sort of like overplayed it. So what's what happened was I, it was like um, what a week before a week before my fortieth birthday, which is you know. It's, uh, I love birthdays, right? I love going out and celebrating and getting all my friends around and and then cooking and then hiding from them in plain sight, right? Um, I, I'll, I'll, be in, I'll be in the kitchen cooking 
and everyone's like drinking and chatting around me and um and i don't i hardly ever talk to anyone i just say hello and and then i just i look busy and then everyone has a nice party that i've thrown a nice party for everyone but no one's spoken to you i don't really have to participate in it <laughs> that's true that is what you do and um uh, but i like i i, I do, but i do love birthdays and i love kind of like um I normally don't do anything on my birthday in terms of work, and then I just sort of like just. But because um, because I think a week before there was the rules, there was the ten o'clock curfew that was brought in, and then there was also no more than six people in a room, or six people at a party or a gathering. It was just kind of like, oh, well, this, well, that's absolutely fucked. You know, I, I think a lot of my friends have had birth. <laughs> a lot of my friends had birthday th- this year. Did they? Uh, yeah, right. a lot of them. Yeah, it was weird. Um, but uh, so I, I, you know, other people's birthdays would be fucked. But this was my birthday, so it was more important. Anyway, so uh, what I agree, what I agree, I, I've got I've got one friend who um, wife and three kids. That's six people, including me. I mean. And so that's that's literally. I mean, and I don't I don't consider that a a, a birthday party. I'm afraid. Um, so do you know what I mean? So I so what I did was I organised it so that um, I saw lots of different people, lots of different groups of people, and I or I put them all in the diary so that I was going to see lots of lots of different people because I didn't think I'd see anyone on my birthday. And um, and then um, so, but on my dad, on my actual on my actual birthday, my I went um, uh, I went to had dinner, had lunch with my mum and dad, and um, this wonderful uh, wonderful woman I'm going out with, and we all went um, we all went out for lunch and it just so happened my parents didn't want to go too far away from my flat so we ended up in Angel in Islington and it just so happened that in Angel uh, the Angel view for some reason they were showing Rocky and I and I knew that my mum and my dad had never seen Rocky and I think my mum thought it was just going to be two hours of punching and um, so I took, and my dad, I made a box, I made a boxing film that my dad was in as the referee. And I don't think he'd even seen Rocky. And so I took them to see uh, Rocky at the Angel View in the afternoon and uh, watched that. And yeah, it was incredible. Like I think when they didn't know, it was a surprise to them. So when the actual, um, you know, it has the, the British certificate board came up, it said 12A, because it's a 12A. Rocky and I think my dad got up and he he pretended to leave <laughs> and um because uh, obviously I'm a huge Sylvester Stallone fan and it was just a, like it's just a coincidence and anyway so Rocky came on and they and it's this really sweet romantic film that's got about 20 minutes of boxing at the end of it and it's just really it's just really sweet and yeah they all loved it and then we went for a drink and then um so my girlfriend and uh, had been meeting up with you 
and my best friend Rebecca behind my back. She didn't know them. She's she 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 she'd met you, I think, but she didn't know um, Rebecca, and she met up with everyone on Facebook, and I didn't know this, and um, uh, yes, I, she threw me a surprise birthday party in a cinema. So because it's a cinema, there was a loophole where you can have. I think you could have 14 people socially distanced because oh. it's a cinema. So we went to this little private cinema in, in Shoreditch. Um, and uh, what? So I'd been to the cinema already, and then we went across to Shoreditch, and then we went and watched another film. We watched Army of Darkness, the uh, European cut, which, so like three weeks ago, you said. Oh, what's the best cut of Army of Darkness, Nick? And I said, the European cut. And then he said, oh, can I borrow that? And I was like, yeah. And I went and found it. And I had, like, a German box set and an Australian box set. And I was like, it's one of these. I don't know. I don't know. And I was really excited because I thought you were going to watch Army of Darkness. And I thought, because I'm so enthusiastic about it, I thought you wanted to see my favourite cut of it. And then you never mentioned it again. And I was just like, fucking hell, what do you mean you never mentioned it? Um, oh, I guess he just—I guess he wasn't that desperate to see it. And then, um, uh, and then what happened was the night—the night before, on uh, the thirtieth of September, I had some friends over, and um, I was like, "Well, let's watch um, at midnight." As it's your proper birthday now. As the clock turned to my birthday, I said, "At midnight, let's watch Army of Darkness because my TV's working, and I've got." It taped off film four, which is the European cut. So let's watch Army of Darkness, and uh, and they were like, "No, I don't want to watch it. It sounds sounds shit." And I was like, "What do you mean?" And I was and I was absolutely gutted. I was gutted, and they were just literally. Uh, my friend Phil Ellis, comedian Phil Ellis, he was like saying, "No, I watched it recently, and it's a load of shit. Don't want to watch that." And I was like, "Oh," and I was gutted. I was very drunk, but I was really gutted. And then it sort of like dawned on me that we might be watching Army of Darkness. And then as we were in a taxi, um, oh, that it slightly, slightly dawned on me that I might be doing something Army of Darkness related on my actual birthday. And then um, as we were getting a taxi from Angel to um, uh, Shoreditch, uh, I was like, oh, yeah, but we may be watching Army of Darkness, but what cut is it going to be? I bet it's not the European cut. And as I was thinking that, I went, hang on a minute, Nathaniel borrowed that. Oh, you absolute fucker. And I got furious and I got, and then we got to the cinema and there were all these Army of Darkness posters with my face on it. And um, I was like, oh no. And then we went into the cinema and there was like um, all my, all my favourite people with masks on. So I couldn't recognise who anyone was. Uh, so it took me a while to, for it to sink in. And then, um, and yeah, and I was, I was totally surprised. I've never had a surprise party before, and it was, yeah, and um, it's the best, um, best birthday. It was the best birthday present. Yeah, it was amazing. You never know how you're going to react to a surprise birthday party, do you? Like, I don't know whether would that be, you might go, oh, I sort of hate this. But I'm glad, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I, sort of, I think it's, it's almost impossible not to hate it a little bit because you're not in control of a situation. And also, um, like I said, normally what I would do is I would hide, you know, and, uh, and, and you're all of a sudden 
image that you haven't created, where you are now the centre of attention, and you're kind of like now you feel very responsible for other people's good time, when in actual fact it's not something that you. But the film took care of that, and then we, we, there was Rebecca, my friend Rebecca, who um, has just got a um, a degree. Uh, she got a two one. Um, and it's her birthday uh, this week. Uh, we, we went to primary school. We've known each other since primary school. And uh, we were, like, born a week apart from each other. So we've known each other for, like, 33 years now. Um, and she she's a chef. And she cooked all this food. And she be- she made me a Michelangelo birthday cake from Teenage Mutant. Because when we were at school, she was Raphael, I was Michelangelo, and we got beaten up. Um, <laughs> so you have the, the fighting skills of the turtles. We didn't have the fighting, but we weren't teenagers. We were pre- we were preschool mutant ninja turtles at that point. Um, so um, yeah, it was just really great, and I just yeah, I couldn't believe like how sneaky everyone was. So it was kind of um, yeah, it's really good. But now the downside is I've had to fucking have like nine birthday parties since and it's like ah i've been doing like two a day like i'll have lunch with someone then dinner with someone else and um i think that's what i think if i did that i'd have a similar thing where i'd like it in the lead up like oh this will be fun i'm doing all these things and then i reckon after about the third or fourth day i just want to sit indoors and not see anyone I've never been so exhausted. I've never been so. I um, had uh, lunch with, um, no, I had dinner with. Uh, we went to Brighton to see my friends from uni, and then in the evening I saw my friends from Brighton when I lived in Brighton, and then spent the day in Brighton on Monday. And we drove back, and I had this off. I, I had this dinner that I had to go to with my friends from secondary school, who I absolutely love, but I did not want to go to the dinner. And so um, I got, uh, uh, my girlfriend dropped me off for the dinner, and she was just like, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to just go home. And I was like, OK. You're eating out as well. You're kind of... Uh, if, you're, if you've had, like, a proper big lunch, you don't need a, an evening out meal, do you? You're no. kind of done, aren't you? You've just you had enough no. food. Well, it depends. What, it depends it's, but you also are aware what you're going to do, so you're in control of what you're eating. Yeah, it's not like you're surprising yourself every every time. You can go like, oh, I've got to go out for dinner. But like, so I got dropped off on Monday to go to this um, this dinner with my friends. And I got there, and um, it turned out that I was a day early, and I was never been so happy. <laughs> <laughs> I, got there, I was like, where is everyone? And they said you know, it's tomorrow that we're meeting, and I was just like, oh yes, this is great. So I walked home and I, I went to bed. Went to bed at eight thirty. <laughs> uh, did... Christmas, I have people like people you probably haven't seen all year. Go, hey, we got to meet up. It's Christmas, and you go, yeah. Well, we could do it next month, and then you sort of seem to have to be out. It won't happen this year, but you'll you'll have to. You almost have to be out every night of the week, being doing a nice thing and seeing people you like, or whatever. But it's just this sort of exhausting kind of. Oh, I've got to do this. I've got to see this person, and it's every night. It is exhausting, and it's just because I, I was very tired on Sunday, so I wasn't on the best form. But you know what? I remember Sunday, and I remember uh, as a memory, um, I got to see my friends, and it was very rare to get everyone in 
in a place. So I think it's probably worth it. Also, these are people that I haven't seen in maybe a year, and especially during coronavirus, I haven't seen people in um, um, like a lot. I like my my friend, my friend John. He's got three kids, and they're all growing up. You know, he's had a baby during lockdown, but I mean, you could have technically. Um, had nine months pregnancy during lockdown and I had a kid by now, you know. It's kind of, uh, it's what a crazy year. And it's kind of like I've missed all these people. And in actual fact, if I'd have had one big party, then I wouldn't have caught up with anyone. And in actual fact, I've managed to catch up with everyone a little bit. And um, and it, it, will, it will just be memories, you know. Mm. It, will, it will just be good memories, happy memories, rather than remembering how tired you were so i think it's worth it i like and the thing about christmas is christmas is like this unmovable deadline where um it's kind of weird there's like a big build-up to it and then it's sort of like before you know it it happens and then it's sort of like um you've got that little hammock in between christmas and new year and then as soon as it's new year it's just kind of like well it's over it's january now let's get on with everything and it's kind of like you if you don't do you know, when I go back to when I go back to my parents, uh, I'll maybe go back on Christmas Eve, or I'll go back the day before Christmas Eve, and then you have like you only know, really have two days to fit everyone in um, for, from back home, and it's kind of like so that always feels really exhausting. But it's kind of like I don't know. Um, I, th- I find I find Christmas quite. Uh, stressful trying to get every you know because you, it's, you've got a deadline. It's just like well, I've got to see them before. I think part of the the nice thing about Christmas is it's that thing where it feels like the days leading up to it are so rushed that Christmas is a bit like, (sighs) because you can't do it. If you haven't done it, it's fine. It's not. It's just over. It's like only Oh, right. Done it. Right. I'm on a train now. That's as much as I can get done. Yeah, sure. It's a bit like when coronavirus hit and I had all of these meetings and everything. And then I got ill and then I just cancelled everything. And then I was just like, there's nothing that can be done about it. And also, legitimately, everyone has to be okay with the fact that I'm not doing the thing that I said I was going to do because yeah. it's corona. And it's sort of like well, Christmas. When the, <laughs> when the doors close and it goes, right, that's it, your time's up. It's Christmas now. Um, then it's kind of like, it is what it is, isn't it? It's like yeah. putting your pens down. Uh, and handing your working out. It's like being in the thing in the crystal maze where you're grabbing all the tickets. At the end of it, it's I like, mean, oh, that's as many as you've got. It's like a lot of things, uh, what, we're, what we're learning. Um, anyway, <clears throat> Rocky is, I would say, uh, one of th- uh, a perfect movie. It's I think a it's great. great. Movie. And I'm sort of surprised your parents hadn't seen it. I guess is it because they sort of see it in the, the world of Schwarzenegger and Stallone in the 80s and being this... Yeah, I think Stallone. Um, I've just watched. I've just watched the thing where they were like basically saying that Stallone's name was basically dirt in the nineties, um, which is a bit odd because I I think his nineties films were much better than his eighties films, um, but his early films before he started getting in this in this competition with Schwarzenegger in the eighties, his early stuff in the seventies. I think it's it's great, and it, you know he made like three Rocky films before he started competing with Schwarzenegger. Uh, um, um, and, yeah, I just, I, I think it's, I think it, it's, I don't know. They were never into that stuff. I mean, I grew up, I guess, by the end of 
by the end of the 80s. I think my mum took us to see Twins at the cinema, so that was 89, maybe. Um, and I, I hadn't really got into it. And then I think in about maybe like 91 or 92, there was an Arnold Schwarzenegger... I think Total Recall came out on VHS and I saw that around my mate's house. And then there was sort of like... Uh, and I, I, what I didn't realise was that Total Recall, it's got like aliens in it and it's got... Uh, jokes in it, and it's got good guys and bad guys. It's basically it's a kids' film, except for the fact that it's really gory and there's loads of swearing and stuff. Even better, it's basic. It's basically it's a kids' film, and you go, oh, I didn't realise that. I thought there was something really dark and disturbing and scary about these films. When in actual fact, they're just really broad sort of like adventure films, and um, uh, and so. I saw totally, and then in like '91 there was an Arnold Schwarzenegger season on um, ITV where they showed Red Heat, Commando, Predator, Total Recall, maybe um, Running Man, Raw Deal, all of those. They all, I think it was one every Saturday for about six weeks, and um, and that's when I really got into him. And then I was obsessed with Arnold Schwarzenegger. And then when they did the Michael Aspel. Planet Hollywood thing, I was obsessed with Arnold Schwarzenegger, but that is what actually introduced me into Sylvester Stallone. I never I never really gave him much of a chance. And I just thought he was so sort of like entertaining on that Michael Aspel interview. Like he was the he was the most coherent out of all of them. And then I was just like, oh, so then I saw Cliffhanger and Demolition Man. And then I like, it seems like during the nineties there was a Sylvester Stallone film every like couple of months to go and see. And, um, and then him it was his kind of comeback i didn't really realize that at the time i sort of felt saw him as almost like a constant but it was a real cliffhanger it was a real comeback for him it was it's, but it's so, i mean we talked about it, it's such a good film the opening 10 minutes is just incredible um but yeah i mean and i and he made a lot more films in the 90s than schwarzenegger and also he didn't have that he didn't i, I guess because he never really had a terminator um, he because the Rocky films they don't have to be big budget, you know. There's not explosions and stuff in them. It's just kind of like it's two guys punching. If you can rent a boxing ring, you can film a Rocky film. So it's kind of like he never had like those big spectacular um, uh, special effects extravaganzas that Schwarzenegger had, you know. So there was there was less far for him to fall, you know. He had, and also Stallone has um, an acting range that Schwarzenegger doesn't have. Schwarzenegger is his base, basically, Schwarzenegger is his own special effect. And uh, Stallone um, is, he's often terrible in films, but I, I don't know why that is, because he's, because when you watch stuff like Rocky, he's, he's a great, he's a great actor. He's great in... When he wants to, he—I I mean, I, I must have said this before—but he's really good in *Stop on My Mum Will Shoot*. It's a terrible film. It's one of the worst films ever made. But he's really good in it. And you go, well, you know. And yet, he's terrible in something like um, <clears throat> what's one that he's terrible in? Something like *Cobra*. I, I just think he's. But I guess he's not really awful. He's pretty bad in *Judge Dredd*. Um, and it's kind of like it's a little bit baffling when he's bad. And when there seems to be no wrong reason when he's good or bad, um, but one of the, one of the things I um, and so I guess I guess when I was in Stone, I was like just a, um, I was I was growing up and I was a kid, and I think um, it was just something that my parents never really 
uh, put too much thought into, and I guess they're like dumb films. But when you watch something like Rocky, it's such a simple film. Um, you know, well, I mean, we talked about this when Creed 2 came out. It's such a simple film. But it's almost sort of like unbelievable that um, uh, it, hadn't, it hadn't been done quite like that before. And then also the fact that it's almost like only Stallone could have done it. He's just got that right balance between uh, masculinity and sentimentality and sort of like wholesome, good old yeah. um, basic storytelling where it's just kind of like, yeah, and and it, it, in a way that I think that Sylvester Stallone gets away with sentimentality more than Steven Spielberg does because Steven Spielberg always feels like it's really heavy-handed, whereas when um, Sylvester Stallone does his, one of his speeches out of the Rocky films, they're so sentimental that if any, in anyone else's hands, they would be disgusting to watch and they'd be awful. But when he does that speech in Rocky Balboa to his son, it's sort of like, it, because it's sort of like, it rings so true, um, and it, you kind of like go, well, the, he hasn't invented this for the script, He's invented the script because this is the message that he wanted to put in it, you know. Um, he hasn't just kind of like, we need a speech. He's kind of like gone, I, I've got so He feels like he's actually got something to say, which yeah. is kind of like life, it's like life affirming. And, um, and I think it's great. Um, and then we watch Rocky 2, which, um, so previously, this would be my rundown, uh, Rocky Baba, Rocky, Rocky 2, uh, Rocky Four, uh, Rocky Three, Rocky Five, Creed Two, Creed. That is the order that I would put the Rocky films, right? Uh, and I watched Rocky Two, and I always thought that I—it's almost like a toss-up between which one I prefer, it's Rocky or Rocky Two. It's definitely Rocky. Rocky Two is kind of like almost—it's a perfect sequel, though. Where, um, I mean, I, I was talking about it um, yesterday, where it's basically they make the same film every single time starts with a fight he has some sort of journey he has a moment of self-doubt training montage another fight yeah it's the same film every single time but what's different is the character and what i was saying was um normally with sequels the characters are always the same and the story changes slightly but with the rocky films the story is basically the same every single time but in the second one, rather than kind of like him and Adrian split up and uh, he has to win her back, they go, no, they've done that in the first film. So what in the second film is, they get married and have a kid. And then in the third film, you know, um, it's the same film again. He's got another, he's got another opponent, because basically in the second, Rocky Two, it is Apollo Creed again. So it is almost entirely uh, the same film, where it feels like kind of manufactured, because at the end of the first film, they say there's no rematch. And then they even show that again at the beginning of the second film. He goes, oh, there's not going to be a rematch. And then three minutes later, he's like going, I want a rematch. He goes, I thought he said there wasn't going to be a rematch. He goes, yeah, 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 yeah. And the Rocky films are almost kind of like um, meta, where it's kind of like it's a film where they are creating a sequel out of a thing that promised there wasn't going to be a sequel. And at the beginning, they, they go, well, I thought there wasn't going to be a rematch. He goes, no, I actually have changed my mind and I do want a rematch. And it's kind of like, it's like the film is like telling you that, it, you know, that it's going to have a rematch. They do have, so there's sort of like... I think they're very meta movies, I really do. I think they're kind of, they're often metaphors for, in a very uh, self-reflective way, they're often metaphors for Stallone's own career. 
and seem to be like um like very inward and outward all the time they're often about something that's going on in the culture at the time that you like you say he's commenting on it feels like they're all then they're really good timepieces and they're very good like you say they're very good at kind of emotional stuff and i i know we've spoken about that before but it's very true that it's kind of there's something about that character that says a lot about america and the way the way america kind of sees itself i think yeah and uh, I think if you look at, I mean, Rocky Four gets so much um, piss taken out of it because, well, it's it's probably. I think he's going back and he's doing like a director's edit of it. He's sort oh. of like doing kind of like. I've heard this. He's going. He's going through Rocky Four, and actually, Rocky Four. I, I don't think he's doing all of them. I think it's just Rocky. Well, he, John G. Avelston did Rocky and Rocky Five, and then Stallone uh, directed all the others up till Creed. Um, and so Rocky Four is, 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 I guess, right for it. It's 90 minutes long. It's the shortest Rocky film. And I think it contains something ridiculous, like 25 minutes of montages. So there's like, it's fair, you know, there's not a lot that's going on in it. It's the one with Dolph Lundgren where Rocky uh, uh, single-handedly uh, pulls down the Iron Curtain and ends the Cold War. And... Um, but that speech that he does at the end, where he goes, if I can change and you can change, everybody can change. And you go, that is... Um, it, I think that that was the purpose of the film, you know? That's like, he's literally saying, we can all change, we don't have to do this. And you go, yes, it's sentimental, but I, th I, I just think he gets away with it. I, I don't... Quite, uh, yeah, I think there's... There's something quite genuine about it as well that probably is different than a lot of the way that you're saying about Spielberg. And Spielberg, when he does sentimentality well, and it's coming from something real, I think works great. But I think too often it's almost like it's like it's also now become a trick he knows rather than uh, something genuine. And it can Spielberg. be it's just that sometimes he can also employ that as like a device to. I feel like I'm being manipulated. You know, whereas I just, um, and maybe it's because as, um, you know, maybe it's because as like a filmmaker, Stallone is much less sophisticated and he maybe he doesn't have those skills. So, so when you, when you watch it, it's kind of like, you're not really being manipulated because he's not manipulating you. He's literally just saying what he thinks. And it's kind of like, you get to, so Rocky three, he gets all arrogant and, um, uh, he spends the money. That's that's the only meets Mister. Rocky for uh, the Cold War was going on, and he wanted to he, he wanted to make about that, and he used Rocky as a vehicle to do that. Yeah, he's got to fight this big Russian guy, um, but um, but at the end of it, he he puts a message out, like a really like a like a really positive message, and it's just like you go, well, it's kind of it's kind of really crazy. I love it. I love it. And then um, Rocky Five, I'm probably least familiar with, but I don't think it's a terrible film. And um, I mean, Rocky Five, anyone that thinks Rocky Five is a terrible film needs to go back and watch all of the Expendables films. Do you know what I mean? It's just kind of like, it's almost, um, Rocky is such clean storytelling. Uh, and Rocky Two is like a great sequel. It's written and directed by Stallone, Rocky II. Um, when you look at the Expendables and it was written and directed, it just, it doesn't make sense shot by shot not even scene by scene shot by shot 
you can't tell what the fuck is going on in Expendables. It's like everyone, like Mickey Rourke, they'd, fil- they'd all filmed a scene, and then Mickey Rourke comes in and improvises, goes so far off script that everything that they filmed before him is almost unusable. And then they, but they don't have any more time to reshoot the scene, so they just put it together and they go, "Well, this is the best we've got." But it's kind of like everyone goes off script, and no one is improvising at the same time. So there's really very little for them to cut together. So when you look at it all, it's kind of like Stallone was so grateful that all these people turned up to do his film that he said, "Oh yeah, don't don't worry about the script. Do what you like." And everyone did. And then in the edit, he was just like, "I don't know how to make this into a film." I mean, Expendables is just an absolute mess. Whereas and you, and you go, well, that's because Stallone wrote it and directed it. But you look at the Rockies, and they're so clean, and they're so well like, put together. And, they're very uh, they just make as a series as well. I think that it's quite a satisfying... Like, the story, just in a very basic plot level, they're all very satisfying about how that story can continue, even though it feels <laughs> like, well, that's the end. It always, right up to the creeds, it feels like, you know, at the end of Rocky Balboa, the idea of them doing oh, there's going to be another one, you go, oh, no, end it now. And then when you see him, you go, no, no, it kind of makes sense. It makes sense. I can see how they could do another one of these. I see how they could do another well, even, one. Well, even Rocky Five, when was that, 1990? And then uh, Rocky uh, Balboa was 2006. So, like, he'd had, like, a 16-year break. And uh, and it's, yeah, it's, I mean, they're, they're a, it's a soap opera, though, isn't it? Yeah. And I think he does something clever with um, with time, in them, where at the end of Rocky, he becomes like a, the champion. Oh, no, he doesn't. At the, at the end of Rocky, well, whatever, spoiler alert. But um, but at the end of Rocky, he's got a career, right? And then at the beginning of Rocky 2, even though it starts with the same fight that the first one ends, he's all of a sudden now this absolute superstar and everyone's chucking money at him and it's about him dealing with kind of like fame and stuff and that his career and that he's going to go blind and he's got to give up boxing. But he's only had one fight. And then he has another fight at the end of the second one and then at the beginning of the third one it starts with that fight. And yet, so he's had two fights in two films. And he's had two fights in three films. And yet it's like, it's like at the end of Rocky Three he's got a son and at the beginning of... Um, or maybe it's the end of Rocky Four and the beginning of Rocky Five. His son grows up by like ten years over one night um, because it was like set because the films are set like three years apart. The films are made three years apart, but they're set like bang, 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 like right after each other. Hmm. So it's just it's just it's really weird. But he sort of gets away with it. It's sort of like a magic trick. Also, anyway, we've got to play a song. We do. We do. Oh, no, go on. What were you going to say? What were you going to say before we go into something? Even in like something like. The fight between um, Apollo Creed and Rocky at the end of Rocky Three that you don't see becomes a big plot point of Rocky Balboa. So even these things where even like almost like retrospectively, all the films have an important place in uh, in the canon of it. Yeah, possibly, possibly apart from the fifth one, which but that's all. But, uh, what I would say, what I would say is that some of the stakes that they set up in Rocky Two which is that he's going blind and all that, are kind of like um, uh, glanced over, right? And they don't really set it up that great. And when you get to Rocky V, they they set up the stakes for Rocky V really, really brilliantly, right? 
Rocky too, they say, well, you might go blind and then you can miss that. And then by the time you get to the end, they, they don't really make a big thing about that. But in Rocky V, they go, nah, you're going to get brain damage if you keep fighting and, and you could die. And then it's just kind of like, right, OK. And then you understand it all. So it's almost like he uses Rocky V to fix some of the things that he didn't quite get right in Rocky II. It's like, I think, yeah, it's a work in progress. It's an, but it's great. And it's fair, it's... You know, he got nominated for Creed, and you go, he's been playing that part since 1976. And he got nominated, you know, 40 years later, playing the same character in the seventh part of an eight-part franchise. And you go, that's absolutely mental. The quality never drops below a three-star movie. You get five stars, and the, and the very worst ones in the, in the series are still good films, you know. It's kind of, that's unheard of, and it doesn't get enough respect. Anyway, that's what I think. I agree. I agree. I agree. Let's play a song. <laughs> Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Fubar Radio. Well, I guess we're back. Um, one thing that I did want to say about um, Rocky II was something that I observed is that, um, that in Rocky One, he does like the, the training montage in Rocky Two is not very good, right? Um, there's, he sort of does a training montage, but then the main training montage, it's kind of like they do like a mini training montage, and there's a bit when he sort of like changes gear. And uh, Rocky 1 has like an amazing training montage. Rocky 2, the film is basically um, Rocky isn't going to fight for the majority of the film, and then he suddenly decides that he's going to fight like right near the end because Adrian tells him to. She's anti him fighting, and then, and then she says, OK, you can fight. And... He, he he needed her permission so that he could do it, um, and uh, this, the main training montage is basically him going for a run, um, and as he's running, more and more kids join him, and so by the end of it, he's surrounded by, you know, uh, hundreds of kids, and um, <laughs> and. Uh, in the first film, it's kind of like when he runs up the Philadelphia steps, it's kind of like a really big achievement. He starts off the film and he can barely make it up the steps. And by the end of the film, he's going like three steps at a time and he gets right and he gets to the top of the Philadelphia Museum steps and he's like jumping up and down. And you go, Yeah, fucking hell, Rocky did it. Like, what an achievement. He's been, you know, he's in training and now he can run up the steps. In Rocky 2, he runs up the steps as does hundreds of children, right? Uh, and then they all get to the top of the steps at the same time. He's surrounded by them, and they're like, and they've all been running for as long as he has because he's been running. He's basically done a marathon all the way around Philadelphia, as well as so as uh, hundreds of kids. And then they all run up to the top of the thing. And you go, well, it's not much of an achievement, you know. And they're all jumping. All the kids are jumping up and down on the top of the steps. And you go, yeah. And there's like a fat kid right at the front. And you go, well, he made it. He's he's been running the whole time, like. All of them kids can do exactly what Rocky's done. And, like, in the first one, it's just kind of like, can you imagine running up those steps? And in the second one, it's just like, actually, literally anyone can do that. Anyone can do that. So it's kind of like, I know what they're saying. They're saying, basically, Rocky has sort of, like, uh, won over the hearts of Philadelphia, and now all the kids look up to him, and it's great. But what they're actually doing is they're um, greatly undermining... Uh, everything that he achieved in the, in, the, in the two films that we've watched so far. So uh, that's a shame. Um, anyway, what have, you, what have you been a fan of this week, Nat? Yeah, well, I have been a fan of, and I can't remember whether you spoke about this last time we were on, but it's been so long, it's hard to tell. 
I saw Bill and Ted on Monday. Um, oh, yeah. Talking about that on the radio. Have we done that on here? Um, yeah, we did. Oh, I loved it. Yeah, I know. Um, oh, yes, exactly. We, talk, I we agree. talked about it. We talked about it um, technically last week, but it right. was two weeks ago. We filmed it first, and then we talked about Tenet, and Tenet was the week before, but even though we filmed that after. Um, so, uh, yeah, we did. But yeah, but, yeah, it's great, right? Right, and it's so it's probably one of those, one of the few times they've done one of those films where, you know, they do, like Rocky Balboa or whatever, that they do the, the sequel to a film years and years after the last part. And yet it still feels totally the same without mm. the tone as is, is absolutely on the nose uh, to the point where those films, you don't really get films like it anymore. And yet it feels like you've absolutely nailed the tone of it. And it's so charming. And so um, it's sort of silly. And it's, you know, it's like a 90 minute movie that's really silly and throwaway. And yet it's so charming and totally, and, and, and just how much I was laughing, it just really made me laugh. Because you, it's easy to laugh at because you're smiling all the way through it. It's yeah, yeah, really yeah. easy to laugh at all the jokes because you're halfway there at every point during the film. Like Within like a minute, I had a big grin on my face. Yeah, that first 15 minutes, that, uh, that, that speech they do at the wedding at the beginning, I mean, I was just laughing out loud in a near-empty cinema yeah. for like the first 15 minutes of the film. I had so much fun. It was... Um, yeah, I just think it's one of the cheapest looking films I've ever seen. <laughs> but um, but you're so happy to see those two guys together on screen. It's like you're literally catching up with two old friends. Um, and it is so... Um, well, like Rocky as well. I mean, it is so sort of like well-meaning that it's almost... It's just impossible to really... Un I don't... I, you know, it's impossible not to like it exactly. because it's, it's very... its heart is in such the right place that you just go, I love it. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's almost impossible to pick fault with it just because it's so... And it's not, you know, it's silly. It's total throwaway, and that's exactly what it's supposed to be. And you just don't really have films like that because the stakes of making a film are so much higher now that I guess you don't you're not allowed to have kind of smaller movies that are just, like, fun. 90-minute fun movies. And it's really great. And I think it's really, like... Um, uh, I think it's a really cheerful movie, and it's uh, exactly what people want now, I think, or should would get a kind of kick out of. Because it's such a... Yeah, like you say, it's so well-meaning and wholesome and really, like, yeah, well done, everyone. <laughs> So yeah. great to see them all, and so and like you say, it's it's almost like everyone loves Keanu Reeves, and um, and quite right too. But you have seen him in lots of films, and you always like him, and he's such a presence. But to see Alex Winter kind of just step back again and be this mm. character, and you really haven't seen him in, in years and years, and so mm. you're like, oh wow, here he is, and here, here they both are, and they're exactly the same. And it's it's just super charming. Like it's like putting on slippers or something. It's such a like comfortable watch of this is exactly what you want from a sequel. It's exactly and, that. And they haven't done the thing where um Alex Winter sort of like lets Keanu Reeves take the centre stage because he's yes. the big name. Like there's like loads of scenes that Alex Winter completely carries. And like Keanu Reeves is like deferring to him, and it just it, and 
I'm not like, I don't want to patronise anyone, but it seems like a really, it's like a really, it's, they've obviously got a lot of mutual respect and it felt, it's a very generous uh, performance, I think. From I just think that I, as two, okay. So when they did the publicity steals to announce that they were making Bill and Ted, Keanu Reeves had this really cool beard and uh, they, they looked like uh, Bill and Ted only now, right? And then for the actual film, I guess Keanu Reeves shaved so that he would look more like he did back then, but it actually makes him look older than when he, if he'd have just had a beard. And they looked so cool in the publicity stills that also Keanu Reeves is wearing the worst costume I've ever seen in a mainstream film. He wears a salmon shirt with grey sort of like wedding trousers. And it's just, a t and when it starts and you realise he's going to be wearing that for the entire film, it's sort of like, because Alex Winter looks exactly like uh, Bill. And then Ted is wearing this just disgusting outfit for the entire film. And you're just thinking, he's not going to wear that for the entire film, is he? And they go, yeah. And then I kind of like went back to watch the others and was like, is this sort of like a reference to something that he wore? And no, it's not a reference to anything that he wore in the other films. It's just sort of like... Why did you pick that costume? It's true, because actually in the other time, is very much wearing that kind of plaid shirt. It's like a black T-shirt, plaid shirt, right? It's that kind of... It's almost quite a, a look, I think, like quite a iconic look. But yeah, I thought that. Um, yeah. It's got, yeah, he's it's, just wearing this sort of yeah, salmon pink shirt and a he pair looks of like he's just, trousers. He, he looks like he... Because there's a wedding scene at the beginning, but he's wearing a different outfit. It looks like he's just been best man at, his, at someone's wedding. Yeah. He's taken his tie off and untucked his shirt and just got in. And it's kind of like, well, what is this costume? It's, it's awful. Um, and uh, yeah, and he should have had a beard because he, he would have looked he would have looked awesome, like in the publicity stills that he did. But all of that and the fact that the film looks dirt cheap, I guess it's just because they tried to make it for 30 years and they couldn't convince anyone to make it. And so oh. they were just like, it, it got made just because they stuck with it and they forced it to happen. And you go, good, I'm glad. It's yeah, it's like I, I read up a bit because I was trying to work out what the director had done and and I was like, who, who directed this? And it's the Galaxy Quest. Yeah. And, and it was saying that he's been on the project since 2012 and it's been in production before then. And you go, so even the director has been waiting to get this film made for eight years. It almost mm. seems a bit wild, given how much, yeah, given how much the budget is, it feels like some studio shouldn't, at some point, should have just said, yeah, sure, I'll give you however many, eight million or whatever that cost that they got. I mean, how much, how much, how much was it? I don't know. It must, it can't be a huge budget or anything. And it's just... I mean, it looked like it must have been like 10 million. Yeah. Like, I mean, and that's nothing, right? But I, I, if you'd have said, if, like, 50 million sounds way too much, you know, and that's a small budget. Yeah. You know, it was basically done on goodwill and fame. Like, William Sadler is one of the executive producers on it. As he's, like, kind of like, Soderbergh, I quite liked. He's obviously, you presume he's just, like, a fan of the films. He's like, yeah, yeah. I'll uh, try and get some... <laughs> <laughs> But it's not like, you, like the, so the Grim Reaper has got to the point where he's producing. It's just like, so what did he do? Did he like put in like twenty grand or something, or did he work for free? Did he do it as a favour so that he could get? Because he's only in like a couple of scenes. So yeah. did he do it as a favour so that he could get an executive? I mean, I don't know. 
I mean, I'd be, I'd be interested. To, I, it just, it feels like they've been wanting to make it since Bogus Journey, and then yeah. it just nobody did. And it just looks yeah. like a lot of fun. Like everyone's having a lot of fun. Everyone's kind of, yeah, everyone wants to come back, and it's, it's nice, you know, you know, you know, it's that kind of. And when they meet Death, it's that. It does feel like, oh yeah, he's in the gang, and it's a very satisfying trilogy now. I find like it's like that's a really satisfying three film sort of structure yeah it it doesn't feel like a cash grab it feels like it's a valid entry into the franchise absolutely yeah absolutely 25 million for bill and ted 25 million yeah right yeah that makes sense i mean but it's it's it's, sort of makes sense it seems high i mean the special effects are late 90s sci-fi channel standard Yali um, Ruse might have done it for free. Plausibly has done it because he wants to do it. That's what's really nice about it. They're all having a nice time hanging out with each other. Yeah, but you also kind of like, Keanu Reeves is one of the biggest stars on the planet. (laughs) How has it been so difficult to get this film made? Exactly, and the goodwill towards it has been huge, right, ever since they announced it. Everyone's gone, oh, brilliant. Yeah, well, I don't know anyone that's gone into it kind of like actively hating it. And in actual fact, I went to see it with Rebecca. So we, you know, we met when Excellent Adventure came out. So, like, when was that? 1987? Um, yeah, something like that. 88, 89? I think that's too late. Maybe. I think it was quite, I think it was, I think it was quite early. And then, um, so we've known each other for the entire uh, space of time that, um, Bell and Ted have existed. And so when we went together, it was just kind of like... And she'd already seen it. So she went to see it again. Well, we loved it, you know. It's so funny. The, well, the opening is so funny, and then you just, like like you said, just got a smile on your face the whole time. Um, and I think that's good. And especially at the moment, maybe everything... I don't know why they showed Rocky, but it's kind of like... It's such a comforting, sweet, good-natured film. And you, it makes you feel like you can do stuff, you know. And, um, and Bill and Ted is such a well-meaning film. It's been a while since I've actually allowed myself to just sort of like sit down and watch films like that. Um, so there you go. And it, the other thing, weird thing about Rocky is that he, Sylvester Stallone doesn't... Like, Rocky's got a big heart, but he's not the smartest guy in the room. And Stallone doesn't really play those characters. He's always, like, the smartest guy in the room. Yes, yeah. And he's always kind of like... Uh, <sighs> Uh, sort of like miscast in like you know in uh, stuff like Tango and Cash where he wants to play the yuppie rather than kind of like the meathead and you go it would be better if it was the other way around though if you were the Kurt Russell character I mean it would be better it would be a better film but he doesn't want to because he doesn't want to get typecast he's got sort of like an ego where he wants to play the clever guy and you go yeah but you know your best character is Rocky and he doesn't have a gun and he's not blowing people up and he's not going around killing people and, you know, he doesn't swear. He's, you know what I mean? He's, he hasn't got an ego. He's just like this, he's, he's a really likeable character and the film doesn't have any explosions in it and it's, and it's great. And it's just kind of like, it's weird that he became known for this yes. completely... Yes. That's a spot on, very, very, very well observed. Yeah, because it's almost like that's who people love. That's the character that's got to everyone's hearts. You know, they're there to people really warm to is the character that you're most famous for played most often and yet 
are slightly ashamed of. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, I watched The Specialist last week as well, and you just like, oh, he's not great in it. And it's because it's kind of like, he's, he, I mean, he's doing like all this intensity, and it's like, you know, and James Woods is incredible in it. Rod Steiger is just fucking, like, such a bad performance that it's genius. Um, and, uh, and Stallone is sort of like, he sort of like disappears in his own movie. And, um, and he is just consistently excellent at, at, and obviously at Rocky's a performance, and he's, he's, he's consistently excellent at acting him. Do you know what I mean? He's great. It's a believable character that he has invented, that he has created. He's yeah. acting. And I think, I guess, because he got famous for it, he had, to, he had to just play against Rocky every single time to prove that uh, he was actually acting. I think he's so convincing and believable. I guess we've just answered our own little uh, question there. We've gone round in a loop and we've gone, well, that's why. Like an I'll do, I'll do a Rocky, but I have to do kind of like a bunch of other films where I'm like a, a nuclear scientist and, uh, uh, yeah. Well, there you go. Do some fan mail. Let's do some fan mail. Are you ready, Brian? Right, yes, why not? I can't do the accent. <laughs> I can't do me I can't do me own accent. Um, oh ah uh, my name's Brian Johnson. Hello, Nick and Nat, long time listener, first time writer, etc. My friend Lorraine is the most ardent fan of and has seen more horror films than anyone I know. However, for some reason she absolutely detests the nineteen eighty two film The Thing, which happens to be one of my all time favourites. As Vulcan fans of the thing yourselves, please help me persuade her how wrong she is. P.S. I can't remember who directed the thing. Perhaps you could remind me and the other listeners who it is and maybe chat about him or her for a while. Cheers, John. Other listener in America, Tampa, Florida. Um, I don't know if I can remember who directed the thing either. Someone, wouldn't it? I'm not enjoying this. I'm not enjoying this. And uh, I'd love to... I can't play along, because... If she doesn't like the thing, that's absolutely fine. Yeah. It's all right. I like like the thing. The thing is such a part of my childhood growing up, and um, I remember... Christmas, the Christmas I got it on VHS, and I just remember watching it over and over again, and I love it. I think it's great. I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a particularly um, good-looking film, or maybe um, I don't think it's the best-made film. I think In the Mouth of Madness, it's John Carpenter, is a much, it's, it's probably a glossier, better-made film. I think John Carpenter, he does great stuff with his camera, but also he's got sort of guilty at having quite a static camera. And some of the framing is kind of a bit boring and um, uh, it's a bit difficult, it's a bit confusing in places, but it's not about, it's not about that. It's about the fact that what it means to me. And if, if Lorraine doesn't like the thing, that's absolutely fine. And she's allowed to like whatever she likes. And I just want you all to remember that. Um, and if you want to talk about what you like, you know, do your own do your own podcast. Why not? But this is ours, and we will be talking almost exclusively about the thing every week. John Carpenter's the thing. Um, so it's good to hear from you, John, from Tampa, Fla. Joe. Hey, Nick 
and Nat. Have you seen Jude Law's performance in The Island of Osea on the show the third day? Don't you find it a bit too masochistic? I certainly do. Cheers, Kim. No, I'm not. I don't know. Is that a thing that was on the other night? It was something there's something I saw people talking about, but I missed it. Something on Sky. I don't know. Sorry. Not seen it, Kim. Have you seen John Carpenter's The Thing? Uh, why don't we start there and then work our way upwards, all right? Okay. Dick and Nat, how are you doing today, you lovely boys? I'm trying to... This actually sounds much more like him. How are you doing today, you lovely boys? I'm trying to organise a social distance Halloween night. Any suggestions? Thanks, Holly. Um, I'd say do what you did, maybe. If, you can, if you've got, like, a local cinema with a small screen or something, that uh, hiring... That's fun. You can have a bunch of people socially distanced. You can put on your favourite horror movie, perhaps John Carpenter's The Thing, for example, as a suggestion. Oh. You can have whatever you want. Or invite as many people as you like and then chase after them with a chainsaw and then that'll scatter them. So, uh, dear Nick, one of the few stars who only needs one there. Haven't we done that? No. It's good to see brackets. See brackets. Oh, sorry, dear Nick. One of the few stars who only needs one name. And Nathaniel Metcalf. Who, let's be honest, isn't quite at that level yet, but is well on his way to national treasure status. Really enjoy the show and the dynamic you guys have. Saw you live at the Ledman in Sheffield a few years ago, Nick, and had a rollicking good time. I'm also one of those swine who has listened to your music on Spotify. That for the... One. I'm also one of those swine who has listened to your music so much on Spotify that for the last three years, at least four of your songs have come up in my most played songs of the year. I would happily post you some money or sponsor a donkey in some way of recompense. Heavy Entertainment is also my, watched, my most watched comedy DVD. Was there ever talk of a second series? Sadly, I haven't had a chance to see you live yet. Nathaniel. Metcalf. But would love to. I think Nathaniel. Metcalf. Should get a Parkinson-esque show as you're a great interviewer and seem able to really put people at ease. Anyway, I'm a couple of episodes behind, so sorry if you've gone over this already, but what do you guys, ma, make of the news there, remake it? Oh, what? Is this the same? This is a very long uh, Make of the thing that they're remaking the thing, and the John Carpenter is apparently going to be involved. Have you guys negotiated a percentage of the box office? I'm pretty sure this wouldn't have been greenlit without you two bringing the film back into the cultural zeitgeist. Any hope? All the best to you both. From here in Tampa, Finland, Tom, P.S. For the first few episodes, I always heard the intro stingers Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf Spamcock. If Fuba want that as a format, they're welcome to it. I wouldn't mind doing a show. No, I wouldn't do that. Perhaps we can do another show. Um, uh, um, uh, I don't have a problem with them remaking... I don't have a problem with them remaking the thing. I hope it's good. And if John Carter... I thought the Halloween film, the recent one, uh, was um, absolutely fine. Uh, I watched it. I enjoyed it. Um, I've not thought about it since. And I don't think it really... It doesn't infringe on the original in any way. Just as the sequel, prequel, remake thing that they made you know, ten years ago of the thing 
that doesn't, I, I don't even think about it when I'm watching the original. And so if they make it and it's really good, that's great. And if they don't, then it doesn't, it doesn't matter. I don't think it matters. Take, doesn't, doesn't take anything away from the original. And to be fair, good for John Carpenter. If he gets paid, uh, you know, I mean, he got famously fucked over on the first Halloween. And, um, and so if he can make money in his old age, then good for him because he's, he deserves it. Uh, was there ever talks of a second series of Heavy Entertainment? I doubt it. I, ba- I planned a second series, so I knew that I had... Uh, I, I, I put aside uh, a lot of material, um, and I wanted to... If they'd asked me for a second series, I didn't want to start from scratch, so I had kind of like six episodes planned. Uh, but I think the people that were in charge hated it. So, um, and, I, and, I, and, and to be fair, I don't think enough people watched it. I think that's uh, so my favourite thing of yours, Nick. I love Heavy Entertainment. I think that's that's my favourite. It's one of the only... Uh, some people don't like it, and it's one of the only things that I can absolutely defend because I was just like, well, we done we did something that's not been repeated since, or, you know, we invented sort of like a new language for what stand-up comedy should look like on TV, and it's different from Shiny Floor, Live at the Apollo stuff, even stuff like Live at the Electric didn't, um, that was meant to be edgy. Uh, didn't do that, and so when we did it, we just basically made it look like an Edinburgh show, and I'm really proud of it. I think it's great. I would have loved to have done a second series, um, but I don't, yeah, like I said, I don't think the people that made it loved it um, as much as I did. Not the producer, but I think some of the executives, and, um, yeah, and I don't think enough people watched it. And I don't think it got any promotion. They stuck it on a shelf for six months. We finished it in August, and it came out, uh, the following May, so it'd been on a shelf like six or seven months. So I think the actual BBC were ashamed of it and they didn't want to see it. Anyway, we've got, um, uh, but as I say, I think it is the best thing I've done, and that means a lot that you like it. Matt. There's three excellent episodes and three episodes that I think could have been better. I think everything that was wrong with that series could have been fixed in the second series as we were learning, and I think it should have got a second series, but it didn't. Uh, okay, so we're going to play a song now, and we're going to get a guest, and I'm going to go to the toilet really quickly. Is that okay? Yes, please. Brilliant. Okay, great, let's go. Live, it's not live, it's pre recorded. Uh, in the studio, we're not in the studio, I'm in my uh, living room, and that is wherever he is. I'm in the laundry room, and we're now joined by our today's special guest, uh, Gary Delaney, comedian extraordinaire, uh, and author of uh, the new his new book, Pundamentalist. Uh, hello, Gary. Hello, mate. Hi. Yeah, I've done the same as everyone else ago, right? I can't work for a year. I'll write a book. I think it's quite quite a common thing. <laughs> so you've basically written a good old-fashioned traditional uh, joke book, right? Yeah, absolutely. I just uh, I've got like I had twenty years worth of, of, of material. I had the time to go through it. Uh, I, I cut out anything that was a bit too much that shops wouldn't take it. And uh, yeah, so it's just a a little back review of uh, all, all manner of my old material. Yeah, and a nice way to retire and pension off bits and whatnot. 
That's, How much? I mean, that's, that's actually answered my uh, question. I was going to ask, is it a collection of your greatest hits or, or did you sit down and write it from scratch? Um, oh, I, I, love, I love joke books. I think they're great. Um, and, uh, and I think your book is brilliant. Um, uh, can you just tell us a little bit about the process? Because it's obviously not like a traditional you know, book. Yeah, um, a little bit about, about selecting the material and how you, what order you put it in, and everything. It's to um, put out something that was slightly more a little permanent record. You know, shows come and they go. Uh, so I, I got this offer of a book at around the time that the whole live industry fell apart, and I thought, well, hang on, I can do that. Um, and the contract was like for about five hundred jokes, something like that. But I thought, well, I kind of wanted stuff in there that people wouldn't have, wouldn't have seen. But I also wanted to put in sort of the jokes that people might know that I've done on telly shows and the like. Um, so I upped that to a thousand and just basically went through. I went through everything. So I, I took a, a few hundred jokes from old tour shows and old Mock the Weeks and Malarkey like that. Um, and then I found I dug out a load of old audio recordings of old sets in the two thousands and old open spots. And I, I went through loads of old notebooks and I went through like eleven years worth of tweets and all that Malarkey and, and just uh, and then whittled it down to a, a thousand usable things. So I, I hopefully. Unless someone's been following me incredibly obsessively and gone come to every gig in 20 years and seen every tweet and every this that, and the other, then there, there'll be stuff in there they don't know. There was stuff in there I didn't know because I've forgotten all about it. So hopefully there's stuff other people don't know. But yeah, it's all it, it's all uh, stuff that I, I either just used on socials or never made a show or was in a show and it's already been used. So yeah, it's a little a little retrospective basically. Because I remember when I'd seen you in the past, um, uh, you a lot of your jokes are sort of like. Um, um, well, I, well, what's the best way? Like near the knuckle, bad taste, and ever. And you always say to the audience, "I'd write clean jokes, but you guys don't laugh at them as much." And so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So do you, I, I have clean jokes for the texture because the clean jokes highlight how dirty the dirty ones are. If you just do dirty jokes, they they soon get tired of it. So you need to change the texture a little bit. Uh, but I, I'm not a sort of a, a family-friendly, clean comedian like a, a sort of Tim Vine type. Um, no. So yeah, so the book is certainly toned down from my live shows, but it's not. Uh, it's not. Kid, I've had people say, "Oh, can I buy it for the kids?" Not. No, no, you can't. It's really not for them. Had the, no, um, right. the Daily Mail were in touch because they wanted to run an extract or something. You know, they do like book extracts and whatnot. Oh, yeah. They were going to run right. some from that, and then they read the rest of it because they, the PR will all have been a list of quite clean jokes, and then they picked up a copy and read the rest of it and were like, "Yeah, we're not doing this." <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, fair enough. I see. One of my favourite things to do is um, is never take responsibility uh, for my own act and always blame the audience if it's going badly. Oh, um, yeah, absolutely. And I very much admire the fact that uh, that you blame the audience for uh, the the, uh, the tone of your uh, jokes. It's on responsibility for my for my yeah. bad actions to other people, but yeah, so yeah. I, I like. Yeah, I like to give the impression that the audience are selecting everything, and they are, but within the range of options that I give them that I don't necessarily fully reveal. But, uh, but you know, you do only go as far as the audience let you. With any given audience, you won't do stuff that's going to die on its hole. So, yeah. you know, they, they kind of are responsible and they let you do it. But I do, you know, that sort of slightly cheaty device of putting yourself on the audience's side rather than your own side. So when you say something awful, uh, it's not your fault. Yeah. This is genius. <laughs> I think he used to have like he used to say, "Do you want a joke from the Blue Book or the Red yeah. Book?" And it'd be like the audience would always say the Blue Book because actually, yeah, match the choice. Of course, they want a dirty joke. 
Max Miller, yeah, absolutely. Well, that's where that's where blue, a bit of blue came from, or working blue. I yeah. had a, I had, yeah, so I, yeah, I had a reference to that in an early show. I can't remember what it was, something, something that you had to select, and it was blue, and it was a little homage to Max Miller. But yeah, I mean, I love that. But obviously, yeah, make, making it the audience's fault is uh, is a tremendous get out of jail free card if you're too much of a coward to stand behind what you want to say. <laughs> Is that where is that where blue material comes from, Max Miller? Yeah, it is. Yeah, apparently. I mean, oh. yeah, that's what I read. I mean, you know, these things. A lot of phrasings have. There's three different competing stories as to where it's come from. But that's the only one I've ever heard for that. That it comes from Max Miller. Sure, yeah. but it's, is it, wouldn't it be something? Couldn't it potentially be like turning the air blue? Could be, unless I mean, I don't know which came first, but it could be. Could be that. Yeah, yeah. But if that came, I think that's amazing because it's just one of those. It's just one of those terms that you sort of like uh, you learn through osmosis. So to find that it's actually quite a recent, well, within the last hundred years, quite a recent invention is kind of really interesting. Yeah, um, but a lot of those things that you know we hear, oh, such and such is the origin of this. A lot of those aren't true or urban. So it may not be true, but I certainly like to think it's true. Because I, I, you know, I, I like Max Miller. I've listened to some of his stuff, and it sounds like, it kind of sounds to me like what we do today or what I do today. And that, you know, he's just basically doing a load of gags. And I've listened to some recording of his, and it's old enough that he's doing jokes about the gas mask the audience have got under their seats. And he, and he's basically talking about the need to break up a show. And he's like, oh, I've done some gags now. I've got to do this so you don't get bored, you know. And he's talking about the texture in your show to hold their attention spans. And just the fact that you can't just do a load of gags in one row. And I'm like, I totally know where you're coming from. And what, you know, it, it, it felt very much like he was talking to me many years later. Yeah, I think he is one of those people, and he has that thing where he'll he'll talk to someone off stage who's not there, or he kind of looks yeah, yeah. looks to the side or whatever. And that's basically, you know that people all, all give lots of great reviews to Stuart Lee's comedy vehicle who looks to the camera and talks to the audience at home. You go, well, that's what Max Miller's doing. You know, yeah, it's, no, it's the same thing. I, I love old comics. I love old comics, and I love I love jokes that look like a traditional old setup and punch joke, you know. Uh, the, the only issues I have with it is a lot of those old comics just did jokes that were anybody's joke and just did their own. Every joke book you see is a compilation of just the same jokes that are in every other blooming joke book you know except unless you've got something by like a named comic author like you buy Stuart Francis's joke book that's Stuart Francis's jokes or Tim Vines but 99% of joke books are just just collections off Google um, mm. so I wanted to do something that, that that was proper in like 2010 I went to see Ken Dodd a couple of times and I went to see Roy Walker and got some old videos of those guys just to look at how they were doing it how they were structuring it and stuff I find that fascinating uh, yeah, I mean, I deeply regret not going to see some of those old comedians uh, when they came up to Edinburgh. It was like one a year, really. They'd like get like, oh, I remember, uh, um, uh, was it uh, Jim Bowen went up, and then Basil Brush was up last year, and it's just kind of. Like, I know Basil Brush is slightly different because he's not, you know, he's being operated by a man. But, <laughs> yeah. um, and Basil uh, appears about seven, seven pantomimes a year. There's a whole bunch of basils. Oh, right. <laughs> oh, they don't care. They don't give a shit. It's not like Disneyland where there's only one Mickey Mouse allowed to be seen at any one time. He's everywhere. Well, that's I great. That's the benefit of character. You wrote some jokes for Basil Brush. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a story I've done on stage. It's, it's half true, but here's the truth of it. My old flatmate uh, was an Irish guy called Queeb MacDonald who, who was in comedy up until about a year ago when he did a very well-timed move into writing and has written these little thriller books that have worked very well for him. Um, but he used to write a lot of stuff for kids' TV, which was qu quite profitable back in the day. And he got approached about a script for Basil Brush. And he was like, oh, I'm not really interested in writing stuff for Basil Brush. And then they were like, this is what it pays. And he was like, well, maybe I can give it a go. 
so so we, me and him we we put together a sample script he did all the grown-up writing which i can't do and i did stupid basil jokes and we had to look through the, the basil brush guidelines and i turned that into a bit that i used on stage for years in that whenever i do a cheesier pun and somebody in the audience would go sort of boom boom i'd always do the same ad lib in inverted commas in response which was to tell a story about writing the jokes for basil and i found rightly used to go um, saying that, yeah, so when you write for Basil, there's basically three rules for his jokes. Um, number one, there's nothing contentious or, you know, controversial, political, you know, because it's, it's on the BBC, you can't take any sides and everything, it's strictly impartial. And I think I had a bit about writing a joke where um, somebody, every time they press the doorbell, it would go, and he'd hide behind the sofa or something like that. Number two, um, oh, gosh, I haven't done this bit for ages. What was it? Um, Number two, oh, number two, there was three bits for a rule of three. I can't remember what the other one was, but basically the main rule was <laughs> that all of these jokes must end in boom, boom. Uh, and that's like a punchline indicator for the kids. They're not all old enough to understand what a joke is, so the joke has to end in boom, boom. And obviously, so my joke was just that the first one I sent in was two suicide bombers going to a pub. And that was my little pre-scripted ad-lib that I'd do every time somebody in an audience would say boom, boom at a cheesier joke. But it's kind of true. I mean, we did write a sample script for them. They never used it. We never, they never took us on. I guess they didn't like it. But it was enough for me to get a bit out of it. <laughs> does, I really love that. Look- oh, no, God, I was just going to say, I love Basil Brush, because uh, he's like one of those... He's such a well-defined comic character that he's yeah. essentially like a sort of Terry Thomas, Leslie Phillips character, but a fox. It's just like, he's defined more than... If you think of him like most of those puppet characters, his comic persona is so well-defined. It's I imagine he's quite a great person to write for because you kind of go, I know exactly who he is. Yeah, the, the only one that's in, in his in in his league is uh, Fuzzy Bear, I guess. Yeah, but Fuzzy Bear's stick is not actually being that that funny. Whereas Basil Brush, I think, is genuinely funny. Yeah, me too. Me too. I like him a lot. Well, um, he's actually got a person. He's actually got a personality. Whereas Sooty is kind of like he's he, he's like the bare minimum of of what you can get away with as some sort of character. You know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Or, when when you do jokes right because i do jokes as well right yes. i only do like f- i do five jokes uh, per show uh, and then the rest is not jokes um but you, but you have other skills that's that's why that's why I, that's why i just do the jokes i've got one skill and i use that well that's kind of you but um Yes. If if I was good at any of them, like, enough, I would just do that. Um, I get away with five jokes. But where, even with just five jokes, I get people that groan at them. And I always think yeah. it's kind of like, why are you here? What is yeah. it that you want? Does yeah. it annoy you? I, I get annoyed at that, and I kind of think, what, what are you doing? I don't get that much of it now. Luckily, people are much more likely to know who I am, so I don't get so many. So when I used to play clubs, especially... I have to say, if I played art centres and play, if I was playing an art centre in, in in the south, I was much more likely to get people groaning or, or they're sort of similar cousins, people are tutting at things they, they slightly disapprove of to try and sort of influence the room and go, oh, yes, well, I'm too clever for this joke or I'm too good a person for this joke. And I, I have absolutely no time for that sort of nonsense. So uh, I, I tend to... Um, um, not pay great heed to those people. In fact, they, I'm, I'm childish. It eggs me on. If somebody's offended at something, I'll just deliberately antagonise them and be rude. And if somebody <laughs> thinks something's too cheesy, I will just do something cheesier because I'm a child. Oh yeah, I, I'll tell them to fuck off. But um, but you 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 probably do it better than yeah. I think you're. Oh, I don't, to well, be I, better. 
You've got, you've got a greater, greater, aggressive stage manner. I just, I just look like a petulant, angry man from IT if I see myself full of... Yeah, but I find that entertaining. <laughs> uh, Is there a difference, Gary, between the book... So the jokes that are in the book, what you put on Twitter and what you do live, or do you see it all as the same thing? Because some jokes obviously work better written down, right? I don't know how candid I should be here, but basically... Um, some stuff just works written down, so that'll go on, on on social media, and that was ideal for the book. But nearly everything that goes on social media nowadays is stuff that works well live, but not good enough to make it into a show I charge for, frankly. That's um, good. So, so I went in the early days of Twitter, like when I started on Twitter in like 2009, and didn't have many followers, and there weren't many people there, and not many, and really nobody posted jokes. If you posted jokes, people used to say, "What are you doing, giving away material?" You know. So, um, so then, in those days, I could actually use it to test out jokes, and if it worked well, I could put it into a live show. But if you put something <laughs> good up now, it can reach so it can reach millions of people in in hours. I put up a stupid joke yesterday. Um, just saying, um, I should never have bought the flat above Lionel Riches, right? Fairly simple. <laughs> and that, I get a lot of people on social media say to me, hey, here's a joke, if you heard this or not. That joke did the rounds and came back to me within six hours. Somebody was telling oh, me that wow. joke, oh, yeah, if you heard this, you can use that. You go, yeah, I wrote it this afternoon, mate. Wow. So that, they, uh, so that, that's, that's how fast they go. So I try, in, in normal conditions, what happens is I, I go, I write a bunch of jokes, which is what I'm doing today, and I do a new material night, I test out 30 or 40 jokes, and I'll pick, you know, so four, five, six, two, whatever, depending on how good the batches will end up in a show. And of the rest, there's probably the same again that are pretty good, and the rest are embarrassing daubs. So the embarrass embarrassing daubs get locked away in a drawer, and I hope nobody ever sees them. And the stuff that's quite good but, does, but not enough to go into a show, like the B-grade jokes, or the stuff you do for three weeks and then drop, or the stuff you end up cutting because your show's not long enough, those are all the jokes that end up on the social media, plus jokes that only weren't written down or topicals that you could only do today and things like that. So that, that's what go on social media. When I get caught out is... When I get a bit bored or I'm needy and I have an idea and I like I haven't got a new material night and I don't I haven't got the patience to sit and wait and work on it and do it properly, so I just put it up straight on social media going, oh, it's only a B, and then it turns out it was a much better joke than I thought. Uh, and then I'm like, oh well, I've already I've already uh, pissed that one away. It's too late now. So sometimes I regret it, and that's happening more at the minute because I haven't got much of a live outlet. I test some stuff at little online gigs, but it's very imperfect. So there's stuff slipping through the net now that is probably better than i'd allow normally and there's certainly stuff in the book um there was a bunch of stuff i i, I did i went through like all the stuff and I, I cut it down to a short list of like 15 1600 jokes and then i had to cut it down to a thousand and then i ended up cutting it down too much to about 980 and so i built it back up but i didn't want to build it back up with stuff that i'd already cut because i you know so i did just put some stuff straight in that i liked um but mostly i tried to use everything live first and social media the rest but, you know, sometimes I get impatient or I get it wrong. Don't you find, though, that by um, uh, putting a joke on online, well, for a start, not everyone that's going to come and see you is going to have read that tweet. But also, if the tweet is successful enough, doesn't it bring people round to following you so that you can sell your book and your tours and your shows to them? Isn't it yes, it actually does. It does. You can use social media to gain followers, uh, and, I, and I certainly do that. I, whenever I put stuff on social media, I hope that people share it and then people will click on it 
because they're funny because they think it's funny and they'll come to see me. So that works the opposite way. To, normally, people would go and see a comic or see them on the telly. They'd like them, think they were funny, and then they'd follow them on social media or join their mailing list and come to see them in a show. I wanted to go the other way. I'll, I put out stuff and they think it's funny, so they give me a follow, and then they come to a show having not seen me before is, is how, it, how it was supposed to work. But the downside with it is 99% of the time when people see jokes online that are my jokes, they don't have my name attached to them. They've just been cut sure. and pasted. Right. Sure. Um, well, I... So that, that's where, you know, the first generation, the stuff you share it from me, fine, that they will see my name and they might come. But every other iterate, I'm certainly by the time it gets stolen by all the sort of plagiarist accounts, by the time it gets put up on dad says jokes and things like that, then, um, mm -hmm. you know, then it just gets out into the wild. But yes, yeah, so you do get, you, you know, you can put stuff online to get the benefit, but you don't, you only get a percentage of it. Sure. Um, I've seen my jokes on the front of, um, after I've written them and performed them on TV, uh, yeah. on the front of like uh, birthday cards and stuff like that. And yeah. where's that one that's always stealing jokes? Scribble, scribbler, scribble. There's I don't a, know there's that a, one, but yeah, there's a whole bunch of them. It's frustrating. But yeah, I mean, you're you you you're the author of the uh, the seven characters joke, isn't that? Is that yours? Uh, I need a uh, password. Eight password. characters long. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Password, yeah. yeah. It's a great joke. Absolutely, ab absolutely classic. Uh, and the amount of people who've, who've come up to me and said, oh, you can use that, and you go, I can't. I really can't, for a whole host of reasons. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. But um, I get annoyed when people say, oh, you can use that, because it, it's kind of like means you go, oh, you don't know what I do for a living. Hmm. You think, you know, I used to get when well, I used yeah. to play jonglers, you know, and you know, jonglers, when you had to, like, use the same toilet as your audience and stuff. It's rapidly going apparent. A lot of people who saw me there just thought I was doing a collection of jokes off the internet, and that was quite frustrating. I mean, it's a compliment in a way, I guess, but it's still annoying. It's annoying. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't. I don't think it's a compliment. I think that basically, uh, if you are a card manufacturer, you could basically spend one evening in watching Dave. You watch Mot the Week. You watch Live at the Apollo, and then you come into work the next day, and you've got like ten. You've got ten birthday cards that. You yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, when when companies do it's well out of order. I, I've seen my stuff on birthday cards, and the other one, the other one where all of my jokes are at the moment is. Um, if you go to the opening monologue of a panto, you'll see my jokes. And obviously mainstream comics and stuff, but, you know. So, yeah, so it, it, that is frustrating. When people are doing it as a business, and it's not just, you know, the funny accountant in the office tweeting out your joke. It's somebody doing it because they collect them, you know, they collect submissions from the general public and put it into a book and things like that. You know, that that's galling. And, you know, people don't, but, but, but nobody... I kind of gave up moaning about it years ago. I could be doing festival gigs and somebody running a T-shirt shop and they'll come up and tell me how many of my jokes they've got on their T-shirts that they're selling for £20 each. And they think I'm going to be pleased. And you're like, what? That's my work. It's not your work. So they don't, people don't have any idea that, that, that we've got you know, IP in these. And the reality is we haven't. There's no protection for the joke. So, you know, you just have to let it lie for the sake of my sanity and go, right, well, at least it means people think they're good jokes. Yeah, there is that. But I do find it weird when people see... Uh, my work that is on something else, like a T-shirt or a card, and they say, oh, yeah. great, and you go like, oh, yeah. no. No, no, I, I, that, that annoys me. And when people give me my own joke and say, you can use that, yeah, I know I can use it. I wrote it in 2002. I'm well aware I can use it, you know. Also, I think it devalues what you do as well, because it's, it's someone telling you, it's almost like someone saying, oh, you can use this one, or have you heard this one, you can use that. It's someone... It's almost assuming that you haven't written any of your material. Or yes, it is. It means they don't know what you do for a living. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But again, I guess they don't care as long as it as long as it's funny. Uh, but yeah, it, so you know, I, I will find that frustrating. But 
I don't know what point there is in getting angry about it, but I know there's two things that people say that means that means that I know they don't really know what I do for a living. And number one is like, oh, you know, here's one you could use, or how about this, how about that? And you go, all right, well, you don't know what I do for a job. And the other one is uh, where people say, oh, I don't know how you remember them. And you go, well, I mean, fine. There's, you know, of all the skills involved in a set of one-liners, it would take me years and years to teach somebody how to write good jokes. Uh, you know, it took me at least 10 years to get good. Uh, and even then, just because you spent 10 years at it doesn't mean you'd be any good at it. But I could teach pretty much anyone to memorize a sequence of 200 jokes in an afternoon. You know, that's, that's the least skill involved other than standing up, holding a microphone and talking, you know. So, yeah. So, Where about uh, Gary? Uh, I won't go into too much detail, but Cheshire, yeah. nice and, and leafy and green. It's lovely. Oh, lovely. So do you think, like, because I think most comics probably can't have a joke book because I think so much of what makes a comic funny is it's the joke plus their persona, right? Whereas these jokes are almost, they're so, they're kind of written within an inch of their life that you can kind of, that you can read it off the page. I sometimes, like, someone like Harry Hill, I, I think a lot of his jokes great but there's lots of silly ones that probably wouldn't read as well off the page as it would be him performing it right agree but harry hill is a fierce joke writer when oh, i was a student um between, i was a student in london between 91 and 94 i saw harry hill 37 times and studied how he watched and i probably came across as one of the weirdos in the audience i've no doubt i did uh, especially when me and my mate ash went to talk to him after one show and ash was a big fan and he painted a picture of harry on his t-shirt and we probably looked pretty crazy but hey you only realize that in retrospect but i i, I my stuff only works if the jokes work. You know, I, I don't have the performance skills or the, the likability or the banter or any of those other things to carry it across. So if the jokes don't work, I die on my hole. And I, when I used to have a bad gig, I'd drive back and write what joke would have been good enough to dig me out of that hole. Or when you have a night where they don't like you, but some of your stuff works, you go, well, hang on. That stuff that worked, even though they didn't like me, that stuff that worked, even though I was following Kevin Bridges at Jonga's Glasgow, that stuff must be really good. How do I get everything else as good as that? So that's what I've always been driven by. But possibly if I put some more effort into learning to be likable or doing basic performance skills, I wouldn't have to write so much. <laughs> so has, has it always been? Has, have you ever tried anything other than one-liners when you were first starting out? Yeah, yeah, and I was bad at it. I've got an old video of me when I was 24 doing it, doing a gig, which I will at some point put online when I can get it converted from VHS into something usable. I used to link my jokes, um, and I used to try the occasional, I tried an occasional sort of long-form story sort of a bit. Uh, yeah, so I, I did try other things, and um, I wasn't good at them. I, I believe that you don't pick your comedy style. I think it picks you. I think you, you basically try different things, and if you keep what the audience laugh at, they'll tell you who you are. It, well, that goes back to blaming your audience. I mean, uh, yeah. people come up to me and they say, you're very aggressive, and it's just like, that's because you, that's what you cunts laughed at. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's it like, <laughs> I, I tried. I tried being nice, but you all hated it. So yeah. now well, you're I stuck with this. I tried, I tried doing jokes that were clean and clever, and do you know what happened? I had no work and no money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Yeah, it's all their fault, have you noticed? I just do that as well. If it's a bad gig, I'm always just like, we wouldn't have to do this if you hadn't showed up. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. You can leave at any point and we can all go home. Um, so let's, um, let's talk to you a little bit about, because uh, our show is called Fan Club, and yes. uh, the, point, the point of the show is essentially 
to bring on a guest and to learn a bit about them through what their favourite things are. But in 200 and, or is it 100? 105 shows, we've not done this once. So we're <laughs> going to try something, we're going to try something different today. And we're going to talk to you about what your favourite things are and what you're a fan of, right? So uh, what is your favourite film? That is a good question. I was thinking about that. I, for years, I would have said <coughs> Buffalo 66 was my favourite film, but that's because I was trying to be all sensitive and arty and bollocks. I don't think it is my favourite film, really. It's a bit indulgent. The, the film that I go back to and I always watch every time it's on because it is outstanding is Jaws. Um, nearly always, if you watch a film that's more than 15, 20 years old, the pacing is so slow and the editing is so slack, it's infuriating to watch. I go back and I watch lots of old things and I'm like, come on, get a move on. I find it really annoying. But try finding a, a shot or a word that is unnecessary in Jaws and you won't. It's absolutely outstanding. It's beautiful. And considering how early that, that was done, I mean, yeah. So I think that that is, you know, that if you ever, when I'm channel hopping, if that's on, I will always watch it. I think that is an that's absolute exactly magic right. class. That is exactly right. It's one of those films that uh, you can sit down, obviously watch it from the beginning, but you can sit down and watch it from any point and just get lost in it and just follow it right the way through. Yeah, everything is perfect. And I don't know, like, sometimes if I watch films, I'm like, what bit, what would I cut? And I don't have an answer for that one. There's nothing I'd cut. I always used to think about, like, if I was Barry Norman, what would be the scene that I would show on my on my show to, like... I think, like, if you look at a film like The Big Lebowski, you yeah. could pick almost any scene from that and put it on your uh, film show to sort of, like, promote the film. I yeah. think I think Jaws is... Yeah, I think... I'm not a massive Spielberg fan, but I would say uh, that Jaws is always in my top ten. I think it's one of those... It's also one of those films that when I'm watching it, I can't put my feet on the floor. Because I feel like there's a shark that's going to bite my legs off when yeah, I'm on yeah. the sofa. I always, when I used to go to Solihull Swimming Baths, I was always convinced there was a shark in there because of watching that film, even though I knew it was illogical. So, no, it's, mm -hmm. it's wonderful. The scene that I, I think is the best scene in the film and the most horrifying and terrifying is where the, um, the bereaved mother slaps Chief Brody and, and just says her child's name. It's absolutely brutal. Yeah. And that's, that's a, that is a classic. I, had a, I, had a, I even referenced that exact moment on a stand-up show, I had a gig that was so bad that um, before I went on stage, a fan came up and said, can I have a photo with you? And I said, I don't do photos before I go on stage. And they were like, go on. And I was like, no, I don't do it. It's, it's a, you know, nine times out of ten, they'll delete it as soon as they see me because I'm, I'm fucking awful, you know, it's a bad omen. And they, like, said, uh, I said... Uh, no, 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 so I won't do it. And they said, oh, go on, just take a photo. And they, I said, all right. So they, I did it. And then they said, you'll recognise us because we're in the front row. And then I went on and they hated everything about it. Brilliant. And I said, uh, <laughs> she stood up and pointed at me like the mum out of Jaws <laughs> and said, you are crap. And I Hilarious. said, she must have hated she must have hated me so much because I'd said cunt about 30 times and she couldn't even bring herself to say shit. She had to say crap. And then she got up and she left. And then her friend got up crying and she left as well. Wow. So like, That's why I don't do photos before gigs, guys. Um, I'm just, I don't yeah, like I, it. Well, I want to sign. It's, it's really tempting fate, isn't it? I totally agree with that. 
But I always just, I, 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 I always said, like, yeah, she pointed, she stood up and she pointed at me like the mother out of Jaws. Um, I love... I, I love I love that film. I think it's I think it's um, and, I think and what I love I love um, I think Roy Scheider never gets enough credit. Yeah, he's outstanding. Our, our cat is named Chief Brody. Oh really? Yeah, yeah. Um, he's he only made sort of like a handful of films, but like, well, maybe he made more than that. I haven't really gone deep into Roy Scheider, but. It seems to me that the films that he was in, well, he wasn't really the lead loads, but the films that he was in went on to be, like, all-time classics. Yeah, I think so. But also on that, you know, you're done. If you if your first album is Sergeant Pepper, you can hang your boots up. You're done, that's fine. Mm. <laughs> I think you're right. I think I think the Jaws has been an almost, like, perfect film. It's come up before where you just think, that's exactly how you do it. You've done it exactly right. And you do see those films, like, um, every now and then you see a film and it, it just makes you think, oh, right, yeah, that's how you're supposed to do films. It feels yeah. like where every scene feels like, like... The best films I keep thinking of is where there are a series of scenes where every scene is satisfying and you enjoy watching it on its own and together, one by one, one after the other, at the end of it, you've suddenly got this... It's basically a perfect film because every scene is great. And it tells a story yep. bit by bit, and it's just, and, and in a way, it sounds—it almost sounds too sort of trite and obvious to say, but it's so rare. It's so rare that you see a thing where every scene has got something going on that's really exciting and fun or funny, and when they're all put together at the end of it, you've got this satisfied narrative that's gone all the way through. But it's just—it's almost like it, it, it's a bit of a lesson of <clears throat> that's sort of how you're supposed to do them. I, I think. A lot of people in many areas of life don't pay enough attention to editing. And I think the bigger and more successful you get, um, the less you need to edit because the less somebody's sitting down and telling you to cut stuff out. So you look at, I don't know, the size of Prince albums or the size of J.K. Rowling books or whatever it is, or you look at the amount of films by big directors that are two and a half hours long, and they're rarely better for being long because there's nobody sitting there and going, Go on, take a chop to that because they're too powerful to, to, to have to take that. But yeah. it makes them better. I mean, mm. Stuart Lee is, is, a, is a fiercely good comic. He's great. But I tell you, when I loved him the most is when I saw him doing 20-minute sets in clubs in the early 90s. And his 20 was amazing. And I know he didn't like doing that. And that wasn't the sort of conditions he liked to operate on. But I tell you, his 20-minute set was a corker. Yeah. Mm. I think that you, you can see that very much though with those J.K. Rowling books or those Harry Potter books with this sort of like phone books by the end of them. And you think, well, you managed to do it in the first one in like a third of the number of pages. So what? Yeah. Why is this better? It's yeah, just almost proof. Just, you can see it and you go, well, surely that's, you know, that's as successful. And your first book is probably one of the biggest selling books of all time. And it's a third of what they end up being. It's just, yeah, yeah. It, does, it does seem mad. I think, yeah, you're right. Have also, you <clears throat> also, the thing about Jaws is that... Um, yeah, you're right. Every single scene is sort of like a classic, and all the performances are classics. And I must have seen that film at, at least twenty times, but I think that's probably underestimating how many times I've seen it. But um, but it's also the sort of film that no matter how many times you see it, you always notice something new in it, and there's and it's it's always sort of like a detail or something that you that you didn't notice before, and it's sort of like the gift that keeps on giving. So you can kind of like. Um, well, my agent's got a daughter, and um, 
they went to see it projected on the side of a cliff uh, by the seaside. Nice. And her, her daughter's sort of like just like young, so she's just turned into a teenager. She'd never seen it before. And like you said, it's a 45-year-old film. It's like made in 1975. And she loved it. And it's just kind of like, you go, there's something that's kind of like reassuring. That There was a film that was made before I was born. And there's a new generation of children that are coming up. And they're watching Jaws. And they're being freaked out by Jaws and fucked up by Jaws in the same way that we were when we were growing up. I think it's just like this timeless film that's just classic. I think that's... That's all I've got to say about that. No, no, you, you cut out on me for a second there. Sorry, I wasn't. Oh, really? Oh, it's like probably, probably the best thing I've ever said on fan club. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, the attention to detail on it is, is, is perfect, and it does, you know, a really good work of art should reward repeat viewing, and that's essentially a difference between one-liners and stories. Um, you know, if, if you write a novel, people can read it and over and over again. I don't know uh, how many times you'd enjoy the same one-liner. It's interesting, then, you're talking about um, Stuart Lee's 20-minute 20, 20 set. And how, do you, how does a 20-minute set for you differ between that and doing a tour show? Because you've got to, the pace of it must be completely different. A lot faster. Um, it's, you know, and it's, it's just all bangers. About 13 minutes in, I'll do something else to change the pace. And, then, um, and it will start off quite clean and end up very rude. Uh, it will start off relatively slow and pick up in pace. I'll try and do some sort of fake audience interaction at some point around three minutes in if I need to, to slightly humanise it. It'll start with something slightly more self-deprecating that pretends to be a chatter where it isn't. But, um, but mostly it's a, 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 um, a 20-minute set is just 100 bangers in order without having to worry too much about structure and pacing. So in which case, that's what you would have been used to doing most. When you've got to do your own tour shows... Was that a total relearning of how you perform your jokes? Yes, it was. Um, I had to learn to slow down, and I had to learn not to panic if I if I took the tempo down a bit because you couldn't keep it up. And I uh, uh, and I you know I watched people and I gradually figured it out. Sometimes tempo is an illusion. Um, two comics I think are very very interesting tempo tricks are Ken Dodd and Harry Hill. And if you watch them both, their opening section, so Ken Dodd would come out with his tickling stick and do quite a lot of very rapid jokes, punctuate with physical stuff and nonsense. And Harry Hill would do something similar, again, starting off at a very rapid pace and with a bit of, you know, rose for the lady or you like the lining, look at the, you know, all, all those bits of nonsense. Um, and they really set the impression that it's fast and get the audience on side and then choke it off at about 10 minutes because you can't maintain that intensity. Uh, but it still leaves the impression that you're going at that speed all the way through. And I think that's a really interesting trick, which I, you know, I, I really like that. So I do have bits where I try and, and, and deliberately choke down the speed, but equally while starting off with the impression of, of going fast. You want people to think it's as fast and gap-packed an hour as it is, but in reality, if you put in the maximum number of jokes you can, they'll tire and you'll get bored. You'll get bored. You do need to break it up and go to other pieces. I use in tour shows. I use a lot of visual material. Um, One-liners is very wordy and all very by ear. For 90% of my set, you could shut your eyes and it would make no difference. Um, but a good contrast to that is just to go visual stuff. So I do a bit of, bit of, you know, a bit of PowerPoint stuff and do picture jokes and things. 
and that's often where I'll take things that I started off as something on my Instagram or whatever. Um, but yeah, a visual joke is a lovely break of pace from that. Some of the visual jokes I present are the same jokes presented in a different manner. I'll do, um, I did a thing where I'd take some stupid jokes that sound like facts and put them in Wikipedia as if they were real facts about that subject. And I'd take a screen grab of that and highlight the fake joke and then sort of present those. And it would work well, but it kind of would work better than it should because kind of they're the same jokes as they were before, but now presenting them in a different way, people reading it instead of hearing it or reading it as well as hearing it or however, just suddenly these jokes get got far more than they did. And that's often like a closing thing I'd do in shows. I don't know if I'll do in the next one. I might change it around. I don't know, but it certainly works. And that's just... You know, the variation in some of the jokes are literally the same word for word, but taking it in a different way, seeing it and hearing it, just incredible that variation in the senses for really. And yeah, you know, there's no difference in, I still say them out loud, there's no difference in the joke, there's no difference in the rhythm, the breathing, the pacing, all of that is the same. But the fact that you can see it as well has a, a very big, a very big difference, and that's interesting. So there's lots of stuff like that I didn't learn on shows for a while. I also, when I started doing full shows, I said I had to learn not to panic if it got a bit slower in the middle and whatnot. But then um, I got faster again because I kind of thought that was an excuse for being a bit lazy and half-assed and shoving a load of B material into the middle of shows. So I kind of had to stop, let, stop that being an excuse and then try and pick it up again. So you do have to have variations on, on pace and texture, and it will. For me, you know, the comics talk about the 40-minute dip. For me, it's at 35 minutes. It's always at 35 minutes. So I, I have to accept that. But you've got to not use that as an excuse to be lazy. So, you know, I, I did, you know, yeah, you've got to bring things down, but don't ever bring it down more than you need to, really. It feels like you're kind of being quite hard on yourself for that way. If you've got to be hard on yourself and the jokes you're putting out there. Is that another reason of doing the book? Does it feel like you're kind of burning material and now you yeah. have to turn yeah. over another 1,000 jokes before you tour again? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the book was good. There's, um, I have a thing what I call joke compost, which is uh, I write jokes... And I'll, I use about 5% of what I write. And uh, so the other 95%, some will go on social media, but unless that joke goes gangbusters, it's still kind of in the mix. I could come back to it and revisit it another day if I got a new angle on it. So I have files and files and notebooks full of junk. And when I sit down to write, if I haven't got enough new ideas, which is very often, I go back and I try to fix old ideas. Uh, in fact, I wish I'd kept better records in my first years as a computer, as a, as a, as a comic, because I didn't. And for my first eight years, I couldn't even afford a computer, so I didn't have very poor records. But a lot of those jokes, that I had, ideas I had years ago, I now know how to make work, but I didn't at that time have the skill. So going back and fixing stuff from years ago is great. So I have piles and piles of joke compost, and this book was kind of a way of deliberately setting fire to the compost and forcing myself to restart. Because sometimes you, sometimes you can go back and fix things and make them better, but sometimes you're just reheating the same old things. So this kind of forced me to do a lot of new stuff. But also, I've had a lot of time to write. I've tried to write, um, basically set myself a target of writing 10 minutes of one-liners a week during lockdown or since gigs stopped. You know. So basically, since like late April when I got my shit together, I've written like 20-odd 10-minute sets. And that's nice. I've got a lot of stuff to pick from. Most of that will be crap and won't make the next show. But it's forced me to come, to come up with a load of new stuff, and that's good. So, yeah, it is, it is, it, it's a deliberate bridge-burning exercise as well. But mostly it's because otherwise I didn't have any work on. Right. <laughs> but you're bound to be. I found that. when you, If I look up an old notebook, jokes that I've abandoned just because I think they're awful 
like just with a few more years on, you can look at them and go, oh, I know exactly how you can make that joke work now. And it's obvious now, but it wouldn't yeah. have been at the time. Or it has this sort of sense of it sounds a bit like a joke, but it wasn't good enough. And then suddenly yeah. you can't well, because you've written it in the wrong order or you've got too many words or not enough words or whatever. There, there was originally another chapter in that book. In fact, there isn't any chapters. It's just a list. But there was a chapter on how to write jokes at the end because I've read all the joke writing books and I think most of them are crap. So I, I wrote 15,000 words on, on how I think you should do it and quite some quite detailed process. And it got cut in the end because it's too nerdy. I don't think most people are interested in that. They just want to read the jokes. But yeah, so there was like some nice little bits. Um, and one of them was basically that point. And it's like basically it's a little, little illustration of you as a new comic with loads of ideas and very little ability. And you 20 years later, as an old, fat, tired comic who you know does a bit of telly and does tours, and suddenly you've got maybe you've got money, you've got time, you've got an audience, but the, you don't have as many ideas as you did when you were 23. So yeah, I mean, so you need so yeah, there was a little bit in there about the importance of keeping all those ideas when you're young and fresh, and your mind is spilling out ideas that you don't know what to do with, because eventually older you will need them. And I wish I'd had better discipline on that. <laughs> had loads of stuff in like that. There was a Venn diagram in there I liked a Venn diagram of set A, things I find funny, set B, things an audience finds funny, intersection C, career, <laughs> basically. And if I don't do things that the audience find funny and I just do things that I find funny, I don't have a career, I only have a hobby. <laughs> that's absolutely right. And uh, that's uh, whenever anyone asks me for advice, I always just say, carry a notebook around with you all the time and yeah, write yeah. everything down. Any idea, even if it's even if you think it might be shit at the time, I look back on stuff and I go, oh, right. In actual fact, um, uh, when I first started writing stuff, I was going through a breakup, and I managed to. Uh, I wrote something like ten years later. I wrote like four Edinburgh shows that were all drawn off of all of the stuff I wrote during that breakup. And you, yeah, I can believe that. And like, even if the entire show wasn't necessarily about that, it was always the starting point where I'd always get the notebooks out and go, at least I can do previews while I'm working out what the show is. So I think it's the most important thing is keeping, making notes and keeping them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, That's one of my, my big lessons for young comics. The other, the other great writing tip I give people, and it's probably the, the single most important thing I've ever learned about writing, which is have a good night's sleep first. Makes a huge difference. That's the single writing. thing that's the biggest effect on my productivity is how much I slept the night before. Oh, wow. That's good. Just because you're, you come fresher to it? or Yeah, yeah. You, you've got to make unexpected connections between things. Um, and anyone can sit down and write a load of mediocre stuff, right? No matter how tired you are, you can sit down and write a hundred work-a-day jokes. But you don't want those. You want the ones that sparkle, Right. The unexpected, yeah. I can't believe that's linked to that. That's the opposite of that. That's similar. These two unexpected things are actually the same. The, you know, and those connections only come when your brain is functioning well. That's so, yeah, that's, that's a big writing tip. I always give people sleep properly. Great. We will um, end the technical part of the interview there. That is great. Uh, your book, Fundamentalist, uh, came out on my birthday, 1st of October, uh, and is available on hardback for twelve ninety nine. And now, Gary, uh, it's time for you to play Better or Worse with Nathaniel Metcalf. Uh, okay. Nathaniel, take it away. This is a game. You have to say whether the next person is better or worse than the person before based entirely on my own opinion. 
Okay, so whether you think they're better or worse, not whether I think they're better or worse. Exactly. Okay, I haven't got you. Give me a gauge. Give me three things I should know about you. Oh, no. You've you've had your chance, Gary. You've had your chance. Don't give him anything, Nathaniel. Just play the fucking game. First name, Ozzy Osbourne, to begin with. It's a high card. Yep. Kelly Osbourne, better or worse than Ozzy Osbourne? Worse. Worse. Is Sharon Osbourne better or worse than Kelly Osbourne? Worse. Uh, worse. Worse. Is Sharon Stone <laughs> better or worse than Sharon Osbourne? Better. better. I think she's worse. Better. Worse. No, that's no, not what I think. I think you think she's worse. Uh, Sharon Stone is better than Sharon Osbourne. Okay. Emma Stone, better or worse than Sharon Stone? Better. 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 Emma Watson, better or worse than Emma Stone? <laughs> Worse. Worse, correct. Emma Thompson, better or worse than Emma Watson? Better. Worse. Better. Daly Thompson, better or worse than Emma Thompson? Definitely better. Worse. Oh, you're too young. (laughs) Bill Murray, better or worse than Daly Thompson? Substantially better. Better. Pierce Brosnan, better or worse than Bill Murray? Worse. 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 Clint Eastwood, better or worse than Pierce Brosnan? Better. Better, yeah, better, better. for sure. What's the score, Natalie? What's the score, Natalie? Six. 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 Gary, normally I would do a big list of all the people that you've beat, but in actual fact, we haven't got the list because Natalie hasn't posted it, but you have come out of everyone this series last. Oh. You're the first first six that we've had. Everyone else has scored seven or above. Okay, well, we don't mind that because that's fine because I'm, I'm going bottom. Everyone else can go go higher. That's good. <laughs> sure. As um, always, it's but... not a reflection on you, Gary. It's a reflection on me. Well, it's oh, I don't think that's the case this time. I don't think that's the case this time. I think it is a terrible reflection on Gary. I think um, I let my own, oh, my own, um, <laughs> my own um, views interfere with the process, even though I'd explained my Venn diagram and that I shouldn't really do that. Yeah, your uh, ego was writing checks that you, 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 your mouth couldn't cash. Or See, whatever. that's how old I am. Um, my ego still writes checks, really. My ego <laughs> should be trying to use contactless when it's too far away or something like that. <laughs> um, uh, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us today, Gary. Oh, thank you. It's, it's been a laugh, guys. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. I very much appreciate it. It's been brilliant. Um, um, And educational as well. Uh, We didn't really get into Jaws that much, but at least we tried. So uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, We will uh, talk to you again uh, next week. Uh, uh, This is me, Nick Helm. This is him, Nathaniel Metcalf. And welcome to the clubhouse, Gary Delaney. Uh, See you next week, guys. Take care. Bye. (laughs) 